Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we thank Hotel X for this latest episode. Mike, we're at the halfway point of Roland Garros. Uh, 2023 French Open rolling along into our second week of action. And uh, I suppose for the first week, some surprises, but probably the usuals all advancing uh, and with chances for titles here. I I feel like we're in the second month of Roland Garros already. It seems like there's been been so much going on and, uh, you know, the best of five set matches on the men's side. It's, uh, you know, a slam is just a whole different animal and, and love it for that. But yeah, as you mentioned on the men's side, you know, the the faces that you, you think should be there right now should be there. And when I'm looking at the top half of the draw, no surprise that Carlos Alcaraz is, is steamrolling. And, and one of those victims was, of course, Canada's Denis Shapovalov, who we'll talk about a little bit later. But as we're recording right now, Alcaraz is going to be set to facing uh, Stefano Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals. That's who you'd expect to be there. Djokovic still there. Hachinov, uh, not a total shock. Oh, I would have expected the other Russian, Rublev, to be there, but Hachinov would have been my second pick in that part of the draw. So things are unfolding sort of more on the men's side, I guess, uh, at least in the top half, how you'd expect. And even in the bottom half, you've got Holgaruna, you've got Kasper Ruud, who's playing, you know, his best clay court tennis, arguably, of, of this season. Sasha Zverev, who's, you know, made two semis at Roland Garros before. So, yeah, we got a few surprising names mixed in there, but overall, the big guns are still where you'd think they, they should be. Yeah, and, and if we start with the top half of the draw, I, I mean, I think what strikes me um, about Carlos Alcaraz, which is so impressive already, and I mean, obviously we saw it last year because he won the U.S. Open. He missed the Australian Open. So this is the first proper slam where we have seen him, of course, with the number one next to his name and, you know, the odds on favorite. And I like the fact that he's playing let's, like such a strong front runner. Like, there haven't really been any hiccups. He doesn't look sort of nervous about having that tag of the number one next to him. It's been all business so far. And, I I mean, if we touch on the fact that he has Denis Shapovalov in the third round and completely dismantled him. Uh, No offense to Denis. I I think, honestly, this was a positive tournament for him, given that he really had no success in the clay court lead-up. Um, only won one match. So for him to make third round of Roland Garros for the first time in his career, wins the tough match over Nakashima in the first round, like that was a success story really for Dennis, given the season that he's had. But the fact that Alcaraz looked leaps and bounds better and, you know, goes one step further in the fourth round, beating Lorenzo Musetti, a great clay court player, 6-3, I mean, he is right now, he's been the standout player for me on the men's side. And this is what gives me the confidence that Alcaraz is going to be a, a terrific player for a, a long time. And I'm not going out to predict how many slams. I'm not saying we're going to mm-hmm. see big three type numbers, but just what we've seen from him so far for his young age. I mean, he just recently turned 20, I think, is phenomenal. He can carry that number one ranking. It doesn't seem to affect his play or put any added pressure on him. Uh, you know, Holger Runa, another young player, also seems like he's ready you know, for the mantle to be up there and to be contending and to be beating the top players in the world. And you got to appreciate the, the confidence that these two young guys are bringing already at such a, a, an early age. And it's really making me kind of like big three. What? Like I'm not even missing the big three right now. I'm really enjoying what we're seeing from this next uh, wave of young players that are coming up. And, and for Alcaraz to do that to Shapovalov, I mean, I know Clay's not his favorite surface, but Mm -hmm. you know, that was a, a real clinic. 
And yet for Chapo, it feels like, yeah, reaching the third round was probably more than we expected. And even in his first round match, after he won the first two sets, someone on Twitter, I, I forget who it was, 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 I mean, probably plenty of people saying, hey, Chapo's up by two sets, one more to go before he closes it out. And I'm like, oh, don't say that. <laughs> and of course, then he dropped the third and the fourth in yeah. that opening round match, but he corrected course and he got it. So I think that of all our Canadian players in singles, Dennis is probably the one that can take the most positive out of what he did, despite not making the second week of action. Yeah. And, and look for him, if you're carrying over some momentum and form, I, I think for the grass courts to be right around the corner for Dennis is absolutely the best case scenario. I, I mean, Wimbledon 2021 is the best slam result of Shapovalov's career. You think, where is he most dangerous? For me, it's Wimbledon. Uh, so so for him to win a couple tough clay matches, uh, as you said, you know, even if he needed five sets against Nakashima, who's a strong opponent. Yeah, definitely for for me, he gets kind of top grades out of the Canadians. We stay on the men's side just with the Canadian theme. Like, we'll talk more about the favorites, but Felix Ojealiasim, I just think, like, for this entire 2023 clay court season, it's almost a wash because I don't think he was ever healthy or ever quite right uh, between, you know, waking up with a stomach bug, having to play his first round match against Fabio Fanini. He could barely move. He had an issue with his knee. He had no proper lead up. He hadn't. I, I think he'd only won one match in Lyon before pulling out of the, the lead-up tournament just one week before. Uh, I mean, the stars were just not aligned, I think, for FA, FAA to make a run here at Roland Garros, and you hope he can just kind of turn the turn the page and forget about it quickly. Let's never mention this clay court swing of Felix's ever again. This, <laughs> this shall be the last time we speak yeah. of the 2023 clay court swing for, for Felix Ogialiasim, and you know, I really thought when, when you and I were speaking with, uh, God, who was our guest? Christopher Clary, I think. And and Chris had uh, finished his spot with us. So I think it was just you and me talking. And I went off and said, like, Felix has to come in and demolish Fabio Fanini. Like, he's got to mm. show this 36-year-old that his time has passed and really assert yeah. himself. And then I saw the result. I'm like, oh, God, that's <laughs> not even a set, you know? But And I was a little bit, I maybe even critical in a tweet I put out there. And I'm never critical of Felix, but I felt like, gosh, how could you not take a but then to find out what he was dealing with. And I think another recent guest of ours, Gil, Gil Gross, mentioned that, yeah, he was dealing with a stomach bug that was obviously difficult to play through. Uh, some other injury, I forget what it was also, that was hampering him in that match. And and he just didn't want to retire. And so, you know, kudos to Felix for for that, you know, valiant kind of effort, despite how, how he was feeling. Um, I, I think if he had been at full capacity, that's a match he wins. But that being said, he wasn't really coming in with with all that much confidence. So, like with Dennis, Felix, and if we look at the the ladies, the Canadian women later too, I, I think the grass court season can't come soon enough, and let's just move forward and turn the page. And and as you mentioned about Chapo, I mean, his game is designed to be super effective on grass. He's just mm. so aggressive and just going for it at all times and for short points, and he's comfortable at net too, for sure. Um, you know, grass could definitely click for him, and, and why not, as you mentioned, his best ever slam result at Wimbledon. So... Um, I'm I'm expecting a step forward from all our Canadians. And, uh, you know, the grass court swing is so niche, right? And I don't want to get into that now as we're talking about Roland Garros too much, but uh, it definitely affords some of our players, uh, you know, a good opportunity here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of good opportunities, I mean, it's almost like this storyline isn't being talked about enough. Novak Djokovic can, of course, stand alone with the record of most career singles grand slams amongst men all time if he gets a win. Um 
you know, this, this coming Sunday, Djokovic and, and Nadal firmly tied at 22. We know Nadal is now sidelined. He's actually sidelined the next five months as he's undergone a new surgery for his uh, psoas injury to his hip. So I don't believe we're going to see him return at all in 2023. Djokovic with an opportunity here at Roland Garros and then presumably opportunities at Wimbledon where he's been incredibly dominant at the U.S. Open. What have you made of his his first week and you know, is, is he sort of number two on your list behind Carlos, I guess? Well, he is right now, I guess. And he wasn't at the start of the tournament. I mean, I had him in my top five. You'd be crazy not to, but <clears throat> I think the fact that, you know, to your point earlier about the, uh, the fact that he could uh, break the deadlock with Nadal for the most slams ever on the men's side in singles play. I think it hasn't been talked about much because he was really limping into Roland Garros that not a lot of people probably gave him as big a chance as you normally would, you know, whether it be the elbow thing that was bothering him or just not seeming like his game was clicking in, in any of the clay court tournaments that he played. <clears throat> but now look at what he's done through four rounds without dropping a set, which is best case scenario for him. He's the only player in the draw who's won the darn thing uh, before who's left in the draw with Stan Wawrinka bowing out. And he knows what's at stake. And so maybe it's even better for him that it's kind of quiet and on the down low. And he can come in a little bit under the radar, which is crazy that a 22-time Grand Slam champion can be considered that. But I still like Holger Runa in the bottom half. And and I think there are a lot of players there that he can make quick work of. And if he gets to the final and he hasn't had the same amount of time on court as, let's say, Djokovic, if he's tested a little bit more against the likes of Hachinov, and you'd have to imagine Alcaraz after that, if he can even get by Alcaraz, uh, I, I still put Holger Runa as my 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 number two. I picked him like he was my pick yeah, beforehand. He, even though Alcaraz is, I understand why he would be considered the favorite among many. But I went with Holger Runa, maybe just to mix it up ever so slightly. I still put him as two and Djokovic at three right now. No, that that's fair. I, I will say um, Djokovic, the way he locked in his third round win over Alejandro Davidovich Fakina, who's a great clay court player, by the way, and actually beat win. him. That was a big time win. And there was sort of like a key moment in that match for me where I was like, that's the Novak. Like, that's the peak Novak that we know at slams can just completely take over. I mean, he had won the first set 7 6, very, very competitive. Second set, uh, I mean, the two were going shot for shot, highly tense battle. Djokovic serving 5 6, 30, 40 set point opportunity for Davidovich Fakina. Djokovic goes into lockdown mode, hitting hard, deep, not giving him anything, saves the set point, holds, and just plays an incredible tiebreak. Anytime he had his back against the wall, you felt like you were seeing his best tennis, and he let out an immense celebration, fist pumping towards the crowd. There were some troublemakers amongst the French crowd who didn't care for it. He also took a medical timeout, but... um, that to me was like, this is the mental giant that we've seen at slams for the better part of a, a decade and a half, particularly the last 10 years when you see him in any sort of trouble um, to go into that type of beast mode where he unlocks his best level at the most crucial of times. You know, if Djokovic can do that against like, that's what's going to be required against Alcaraz probably throughout uh, a best of five encounter. So we don't know for I'm, sure that we'll be getting that semifinal. I, I really want to see it. I'm so excited, and nothing is going to prevent me from watching that match. I'll take yeah. a sick day at work. I'll, I hope no one's <laughs> looking at this. I'll do whatever it takes 
Because all year long, I can't say how many times you and I have mentioned on the podcast, oh, God, we've had everything this year, but we haven't had the two of them. We've had them trade the number one ranking, I feel like, a couple times already. Yep. But we haven't seen them play for it. We haven't seen them with something big on the line. And a slam, you know, Alcaraz trying to get his first ever Roland Garros. You'd, you'd have to think potentially of, of of several, you know, down the road for him, the way he, his game stacks up. But, but Djokovic trying to get, like, there's just so much on the line with number 23 on the line here as well. And uh, I, I want to see it. That's the match. To me, that's the match of the entire men's bracket that we've been wanting to see. And I want to see those guys battle out on the grass courts this year. I want to see them battle out on the hard courts. I want to see them on the indoor circuit in the fall. Like, I want several of these matches while Djokovic is still able to give us peak Djokovic. Oh, 100%. And it, it shouldn't have us maybe gloss over what, sh- what should be a very good quarterfinal, by the way, that Alcaraz is facing Stefano Tsitsipas, who was a finalist in 2021, and his best surface is clay. It's just, uh, you look at this head-to-head, and it's been completely lopsided. 4-0 for Carlos Alcaraz. The first time they played, actually, U.S. Open two years ago was that electric um, second, actually third round win from Alcaraz in five sets, seven, six in the fifth, fifth where he beat Tsitsipas, who was uh, kind of notably rattled to lose that match. And uh, Tsitsipas hasn't beaten him since, and Alcaraz has just gotten stronger and stronger. Like, does Stefanos have a chance here? Yeah, I mean, I think because of previous, you know, results at Roland Garros and the fact he's played so strong at this tournament why not like yeah on a certain level you you know head-to-head factors in but also every match offers a new opportunity as we all know and 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 I think that uh you know does the pressure does Alcaraz start feeling the pressure as Mm -hmm. he gets to the quarters on the verge of the semis thinking perhaps looking ahead maybe looking ahead even to oh I want to play Novak you know so who who knows but but CC pass to me um yeah, at this tournament is a uh, he's money, you know, he's to be counted on, and uh, he's developed a pretty good, you know, repertoire of results there as well. So uh, while I might not take off work to watch it, I may be at work, but having it on, you know, simultaneously, uh, I, I wouldn't want to miss that one either. And look, when I look at the draw, there's there's a lot of interesting matches, women's draw too, which we're going to get to, and so yeah, I'm just enjoying how things are unfolding right now. It's been a lot of fun, and there's still a lot of great tennis to come, and. You know, one thing I want to talk about that you kind of alluded to with Djokovic was the crowd. And uh, these French crowds are uh, not holding back. And uh, I think we want to mention a little bit that Taylor Fritz match. And, oh, my goodness. And what's, and what's your take on it? Because I've never been in a best of five match in front of a crowd that just wants me to lose so badly. <laughs> I can imagine having a little bit of, you know, you're getting your feathers ruffled. And, and you know, I mean, I watched his whole shushing of the crowd and I was kind of, half cringing while watching but half of me was like you know what no you do that like you i you're you've earned to, to respond any way you want to after enduring that for so so many hours you know yeah look i mean taylor fritz against arthur Rinderknecht, uh I, I think was was testy from the very beginning uh i understand and it's it's been the case uh through the history of this tournament that the french players are going to have the immense backing of the crowd that is always the case it is sometimes the case as well that not only are the Parisian fans strongly backing the French player, but they're also being rude and crass and disrupting the fellow opponent. And that was certainly the case for Taylor Fritz. I mean, throughout this match, um, noises between first and second serves, um, sometimes boos and, you know, 
no applause whatsoever when he was winning any type of point. Uh, that I, I think finally things came to a head by that fourth set when Fritz had, had turned it around and taken over the match and finally won it. And boos were raining through the stadium. And, you know, Fritz Fritz kind of just embraced it. He's like, yeah, bring it on, guys. Bring it on. Gave, gave him well, the you shush. Got two right. options. You got two <laughs> options. Either you let it rattle you, you know, yeah. and it throws you off your game, or you use it to fuel the fire like we've seen from players like, you know, Medvedev at the U.S. Open a mm-hmm. couple of years ago, right? And so – Good for him for using it to get him across the finish line to get the win. And, hey, look, it's not like he was flipping the bird to the crowd, right? So it's not like exactly. it was over the top. I'm I'm fine with the reaction, even though it was, uh, like I said, when I first saw it, it kind of, I wasn't sure. But the more I thought about it and put myself in his shoes, I'm like, yeah, you know, he could have done a whole lot worse than just, you know, shush them, to be honest. Oh, 100%. And look for for me as well i i'm all for villain behavior uh and in the case of medvedev at the us open i, I mean medvedev was just kind of being a jerk uh, in this case fritz was responding to a crowd of thousands of people being a jerk to him and i was quite okay with that and i think you're starting to see that response now from some of the players because as i mentioned djokovic after winning that dramatic set over fokina he sort of did the same thing uh i mean he had some booze and and sort of fired back he said you know what like too bad too bad i just won yeah bring it bring it on um which which made for really exciting tennis kudos to fritz for winning that match he did exit in the third round uh i did want to mention briefly gael mofis uh, for him to be able to return and play the French Open, uh, I mean, he's had a lot of injuries and he's he's missed some time. Winning a dramatic five-set thriller in five hours, 45 minutes is incredible. The emotion, like, flood out of him on the court after that happened. He was in tears. I thought that was one of the highlights of the first week. Sad that, you know, that, that match took too much out of him. He couldn't play the second match against Holgaruna, but that was amazing. And, I mean, we should, since we mentioned Medvedev, I, I will give credit to you. You called it. You were never really buying Danil as a contender to win Roland Garros. And sure enough, crashes out in the first round to Tiago Seaboth Wild. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see that coming. I can't claim that I was <laughs> yeah. a first round flame out. But I, I, and I, you know, I had him on the cusp of my top five contenders because of Rome. And yeah, he's the number two seed in the tournament. But I never, yeah, I never really truly bought it as a clay court threat, you know, just due to past performance. So, um, that was quite quite a shock, though, to see him going in the first round. And and just to talk about Monfils for a minute, I mean, one of my favorite players, for sure one of my favorite mm-hmm. remaining active players. And I don't know how much, you know, he's got left in the tank. But to see him have that moment in front of his home crowd and to put in such a gutsy performance. And he's had a tough go since he's been back, you know, and, and kind of hard to come by wins at any level of tournament, really, for him in 2023. So that was huge. And to see him and his, you know, wife, Alina Svitolina, who's still active as we record this, into the quarterfinals on the women's side. Just so nice to see the two of them have that and to be there supporting each other. He was courtside for her first round match, I believe. And it's just, what a sweet story. You know, I'm, I'm always surprised we don't see more tennis romances between ATP and WTA players when they're, you know, kind of following similar tournament schedules throughout the year. And, and just to see their relationship and, and for that to, you know, evolve to the, them being parents now with a child together. And both still trying to make it work on tour. It's um, it's really heartwarming, and um, they're they're both wonderful individuals. I've gotten to spoke, speak with both of them in the past. Um, Svitolina at length a couple of times in interviews, and uh, yeah, just really, it's uh, it's kind of hard. If I can get a little emotional here, 
it's kind of heartwarming to see it. Very, very well said. Looking for the perfect urban getaway for your next family vacation? Look no further than Hotel X Toronto, the city's premier urban resort. With its state-of-the-art fitness facility, 10XTO, and four indoor tennis courts, there's something for everyone in the family. That's not all Hotel X has to offer with luxurious amenities, from the rooftop pool to the award-winning Gurlane Spa, from the 250-seat cinema to the three-level sky bar. There is so much to see and do all under one roof. Whether you're visiting Toronto for business or pleasure, Hotel X is the perfect choice for families and individuals alike. Book your stay today at Toronto's only urban resort, Hotel X Toronto. Experience the extraordinary. And we will move on to the women's side and uh, look, Alina Svitolina, I think the heartwarming story for the women's side reaching the quarterfinals and her return after a long layoff and pregnancy giving birth to her first baby with Monfils. Iga Sviantek certainly has been the dominant force on the women's side, the two-time Roland Garros champion. I mean, just dismantling her opponents into the second week. Already has served up uh, four bagels, six love, six love. And from press, she was not taking the bait in terms of questions about serving up bagels, which uh, I, I respect how humble she is. Jonathan Pinfield, right? Our buddy yes, Jonathan Pinfield, right. who we've had on in the past from Yorkshire, our favorite Yorkshire tennis reporter also the only yorkshire tennis reporter we know but anyways uh he he always has these fun questions and i i dig him you know i like the questions i like him as a person individual mixing it up making it fun in those press conferences because my goodness they could be so boring sometimes uh but he asked the question she wasn't taking the bait and hey listen when you play tennis with friends of yours who who maybe aren't quite as good but they want to have a competitive match with you and you're starting to you know, run away with the game. Do you ever just give them a game and just be like, I don't want to bagel this opponent. Like, I know I could, but I don't want to. Do you ever have a moment like that? Uh, well, certainly. So if, if it were in a competitive tournament, no chance. No right. chance. You, you just I, go I, for it. Yeah, I, I think if you're in, in that competitive environment, and that's why maybe you're seeing this, <laughs> um, you have to go full throttle. You can't take your foot off the gas for one second. So you're trying to win every game, every point at but all what times. What about in a friendly match? What about like in a friendly, friendly match? match I, yeah, I think if it were a friendly match and you're playing someone, it's kind of clear that you are the better player and you're going to win comfortably no matter what you might sort of play a little more casually not to necessarily gift them a game but take more risks that might lead to a loss of a game exactly yeah, yeah. okay okay so i wonder with her not that she would ever give like throw her opponent a bone but like i wonder if she would ever give him a game just so she doesn't have to endure these <laughs> these bagel questions anymore yeah. because you can tell that it's awkward for her and then mm -hmm. she says, like, I don't want to disrespect my opponent, you know, which is like, I think that's really classy and that's great. But I just wonder, like, how sick she is because she bagels a ton of opponents. Like, I don't have the stats, but I can't think of a player who's bagled opponents as much as we've seen from Iga this year and last year. Oh, I, I, I think she's so far and above and beyond the rest of the field in terms of when she uh, winning in such a dominant fashion when she does win. And I mean... It happens more so on clay, but we have seen it on the hard courts before. But but look, I, I, I think for Iga, uh, I mean, as incredible as that, you know, 37 match win streak was last year. This to me is the reminder that her best surface, much like Rafael Nadal, like plays the very best tennis at Roland Garros. I, like, I, I think just the surface, the speed of the court, the space around the court, it just seems to suit her game perfectly. That for me, it's it's going to require 
not only sometime some type of letdown where she's not as sharp, but some type of incredible effort from uh, an op- another opponent to 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 stop her here from winning. She's served up eight bagels in the clay court season so far. Four of them have been through the first three rounds at Roland Garros. I there mean, you go. Unbelievable. She's dropped eight games in total in her three matches so far. And, you know, one of those double bagel results, she's had one in this tournament, but she also had one going back to, uh, not Stuttgart, uh, shoot, it was against Pavlia Chekova, uh in Rome. Six love, mm-hmm. six love. And, and Pavlia Chekova is now into the quarterfinals of Roland Garros. It's not like she's a shabby player. Yeah. He could just destroyed her. So it's um, it's also the opponents that she's dishing these bagels to, um, which is so impressive to me. And, you know, the further along it goes and, and she builds up steam like this, my goodness, it's going to take something special to uh, to take her down, I think. Yeah, I would think so. And look, she has a uh, Lucia Sarenko in the fourth round, which I'm certainly expecting an Iga victory. This was a surprise to me, though, was a uh, Sarenko defeating our Canadian Bianca Andrescu, who I thought BB particularly. I mean, she played well in her second match as well, but I thought that first round match against Victoria Azarenka was high octane, super quality. BB looks so good from the back of the court. Um, you, you know, she was so tough uh, with her fighting spirit coming back in that match that it, it felt like a turning point for her early in this tournament to beat such a strong seated player that I was already thinking she can easily be in the round of 16 and get the challenge of facing Sviantec. I'm very disappointed about that Andrescu match. I just want to I just want to tell everybody I haven't gotten over that one yet because it seemed like a great opportunity. Um like you said, the Azarenka match, boy, that was that was a super fun one to watch. And I've always liked Vika Azarenka too. So I was kind of I was bummed that they were facing each other so early. But I'm also like, ah, we get a great match like this so early in the tournament. That's kind of cool. And, you know, again, I think for for Bianca, with how things have gone lately, we we got to look at this as still a positive result that she got there. Although it oh, I just got expectations up that it could, you know, go a little bit further at least. Although I, yeah, I don't think against Iga it would be any different than than how I think Serenko against Iga is going to go. Um, but you know, at least positively speaking, Bianca got through it okay, physically okay, and um, yeah, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, that continues as we switch to grass too. Yeah, I, I think I was just surprised how timid an exit it was for it was for BB to, yeah. to to lose six one six one. I I mean, credit to Serenko, she played an incredible match. I I think she played quite flawless about as good as she could play and she's had quite an exceptional tournament because she took out Krychikova in the first round as well so you know she's feeling it without a doubt but um look Bianca when she spoke to she spoke to me last year and I asked like what's the element of your game that you're really focused on improving and she identified the serve and the serve was the big problem here in this third round loss. I just want to like point out this one statistic. She only won 38% of her first service points. Like that is a startlingly low percentage to win on your first serve. So she really is going to have to find a way to exploit some weaknesses on her opponent with that first serve, hit some different spots, you know, find some different patterns because I I don't think it's like too sustainable, especially on clay where there are longer rallies, but you have to find a way to get some free points on your serve. And it just wasn't happening for BB at all against Serenko. Yeah, good analysis. And uh, we should point out that uh, Andrescu is still alive 
in uh, mixed doubles. Yeah, which is kind of cool to see her playing that. And we've still got some. Let's you know, it's, hope is not lost for all Canadians. We got some Canadians in doubles. Gabby Dabrowski is going up actually against Leilani Fernandez as we record this in their next women's doubles match. So there will be a Canadian team moving on. And um, and Gabby's still in the. Is she still in the mixed doubles? I think she's still in the mixed doubles, isn't she? I believe so. Yeah. I'll have so to double I check mean, on that. So we do have some some doubles hope that's still in there. So that's there you go. So that's good. Um, Leila Annie Fernandez, unfortunately, in singles, you know, again started strong. Great win against Magda Lynette in the first round, mm-hmm. uh, but then went out in uh, was it straight sets? No, three sets. Three I think, sets and... to to Clara Towson. So yeah, some positives for Leila. I think um, getting a gritty first round win over Lynette, who had that great run in Australia, so it was a capable slam player. And for me, this has kind of summarized Layla's season. It was, it's been win one, lose one, and just trying to find that match momentum. I feel like a lot of her losses, though, this season have been close, close matches. So yeah. this one was 6-4 in the third, could have gone a different direction. Um, but going to take uh, a hit I, in the rankings, though, eh? Her rank, because last year she made the quarters. Yes. Yeah, so. that'll that'll be a little bit costly. We'll see if she can regroup on on grass as well, which I think that's a surface that can work for her. Uh, just to touch on quickly, Elena Rybakina out of this tournament due to illness, which I was very surprised by. Um, I thought she was someone who could definitely make a run deep into the second week, a player that could be in the semis or even even the finals. So that was a gift of a walkover for Sarah Cerebes Tormo. Yeah, and Cerebes Tormo, can we just speak yes. about Cerebes Tormo a little mm-hmm. bit and her doubles partner, Marie Boskova. Marie Boskova, who won like the sportsmanship uh, award a couple of years ago in the WTA, yep. but there was no sportsmanship in their doubles match as they called out their opponents, uh, Sujiati and Kato, uh, for hitting a, li- uh, not a lines person, a ball kid. But it wasn't out of anger. It wasn't out of frustration. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have seen the clip. And if you haven't, go and find it. And it was just, he was returning the ball and hitting it in the direction at the end of a point to the ball kid. But mm-hmm. the ball kid already had two tennis balls in her hands and I don't think saw it coming. And it hit her in the face. But it wasn't like super hard. Anyways, Boskova and Cerebes Tormo were like calling them to be disqualified. And the chair umpire originally was kind of defending them, saying, like, no, I don't think that it's that serious and warranting that. But the officials came out and DQ'd them. And I've never seen a lamer disqualification ever. And these are players who, like, need this prize money deep in a, you know, going into a slam, furthering their, their, their slam results here. To be defaulted for that and to have your opponents calling for your head on a platter, I mean, that's just a terrible look and a terrible decision. And I have to say, this this is one of the biggest BS calls I've seen in a long while in tennis. They got it totally wrong, in my opinion. And I don't even see how anyone can counter-argue that it should have gone that way. Yeah, look, I I thought the whole thing was was an embarrassment, honestly. And I I think the saddest thing of it all is is Kato, the player who you mentioned from Japan, coming on Twitter, issuing an apology to her sponsors and to her fans uh, and you know, admitting that she could be losing all of her prize money for Roland Garros. Now, there is an appeals process, and I'd like to say I'm confident that surely she can win an appeal on this because it was completely outrageous. And I just want to quickly say this before I have any, you know, Nolfam conspiracy theorists suggesting that it's Uh-oh, in any way, any way similar, <laughs> any way similar to Djokovic's disqualification from the U.S. Open. Not Djokovic, all. when he struck the ball in the direction of the lineswoman. 
Uh, it's correct. He didn't hit her intentionally, but he struck the ball out of anger and, and frustration, uncontrolled. He was raging, um, yeah. You know, it was in a moment of rage when he was in a tense first set with Carreño Busta, a set he could have lost. And that was, you know, a lot different than someone passing the ball from the other side of the court back to the ball kid um, in a much slower fashion. So to me, you cannot compare the two. That's ridiculous. Um, and just secondly, so you know, we've interviewed... Marie Boskova, actually, uh, from MBO. And she seemed like such a sweet, nice woman. I I believe she was probably worthy of that sportsmanship award from a few years ago. I don't think that happens by accident. I just, I cannot believe. Caught up up in the moment, maybe, and and kind of maybe, but this is, it's it's something that's really going to hurt the reputation of of not only Boskova, but Sarah Cerebe's Tormo, who actually had their backs to the play. Um, but just assume based on the tears of the ball kid, who I think was sort of crying out of shock rather than actually being hurt, that they would, um, you know, so adamantly push for disqualification. I thought it was like really disappointing. I mean, and did they even I go mean, to the game film the officials before they made this decision, or did they also just no, look at the ball I, I don't think so. And and just maybe say, they don't. Maybe they don't have game film, which is another issue on. that that should yeah. be rectified. But. It was it was a bad look for everybody involved, uh, and particularly for Cerebes Tormo and Boskova. I mean, they are not going to make many friends on tour with well, I this. Hope they get, I hope they get thrashed in their next match. You know what I mean? Like, I just hope that they get totally... I want them to get double bageled now, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um just as we wrap up here, Arena Sabalenka, she has been sort of comfortably advancing and is into the second week. Uh, for me, she's contender number two. She's been dodging, by the way, the press and the media after facing some very strongly worded questions about Ukraine, Belarus, and uh, the the invasion and war. And uh, that's a she said that was taking a toll on her mental health. So she hasn't been to press conferences, but she's been winning matches. Um, any other storylines to touch as we wrap up? I mean, I'm excited to see Sabalenka go up against Fidelina. That should be fun. Yeah. Uh, Mukova, uh, Carolina Mukova, uh, been terrific as well. And, uh, I did see the upset against Zachary coming in the first, I will call mm-hmm. that. I, I did see that one coming yep. and it's great to see her doing well after being away for some time. And, uh, Hey, look, we got another great week of uh, Grand Slam action. Looking forward to recapping it with you next weekend for our listeners. Uh, our thanks again to Hotel X for uh, being the official uh, hotel of Matchpoint Canada. And uh, Ben, looking forward to to just, yeah, all the great matches we're going to see this week, including that Djokovic-Alcaraz one, fingers crossed. No, oh, fingers crossed it happens. Guys, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.